Thanks to Audible, History of the Marine Corps can now give you a free audiobook. Audible is known for its tens of thousands of audiobooks, but they also have choices from podcasts to meditation sessions. I use Audible for myself and for some of the reference material we use on the show. I love audiobooks. For one, I'm a crayon eater, so having someone read the book to me is a lot easier. But it also allows me to rewind and re-listen to segments, and I could listen while I'm doing things around the house. In the spirit of transparency, History of the Marine Corps receives a kickback for everyone who signs up, but the author or the publisher does not sponsor me. Every recommendation is a book I have personally read or listened to and enjoyed. I'll include my suggestion at the end of the episode, but don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This offer is available to any of the tens of thousands of audiobooks offered by Audible. And whether you decide to continue your membership, this book is yours to keep forever. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Now on to the show. Welcome to episode 77 of History of the Marine Corps, The History of Women in the Corps, Part 2. Our last episode discussed women in the Marine Corps during World War I and World War II. This episode continues to explore the decision to integrate women into the Marine Corps. From 1946 to 2021, significant milestones were achieved pertaining to women in the Corps. Not only were more studies produced confirming the value women added to the Marine Corps, but more commands started to provide recommendations experienced through real-world implementations on how integrations would make the Corps stronger and more efficient. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. When we left our last episode, Colonel Joseph Knighton asked the Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Vandergriff, two simple questions. Does the Marine Corps want women in its regular peacetime establishment? If the answer is negative, can the Marine Corps justify this stance if the Army and the Navy have concluded that women should be included in their peacetime establishment? The answer to Knighton's first question was no. The Marine Corps didn't want women in the Corps. On March 18, 1946, Vandergriff asked the Corps to be excluded, and the justification provided was, quote, The number of billets which could be filled to advantage by women in the post-war Marine Corps is so limited that the increased administrative overhead could not be justified, unquote. The Chief of Naval Personnel, Vice Admiral Lewis Denfield, disagreed with the Commandant's justification, when he provided Representative Margaret Smith of Maine with his recommendation on the amendment to the Naval Reserve Act, he stated, quote, All laws or parts of laws which authorize the appointment of persons to commission grades or ranks in the regular Navy and regular Marine Corps, and which authorize the enlistments of persons, should be construed to include the authority to appoint and enlist women in the same manner, and under the same conditions as such laws or parts of laws applied to the appointment and enlistment of men. Unquote. No longer did the Marine Corps have a say in the matter. They were required to have a women's active duty unit. Two years later, 
President Truman signed the Women's Armed Service Integration Act, which legally permitted women to serve in every U.S. military branch. Before that legislation was approved, women didn't have job security in any military organization. Now that the concern of decommissioning a unit was removed, women could have a career in the military. But there were limitations, one of which was the number of women who could serve in the active military. Women could not exceed 2% of the nation's total armed forces strength. The Marine Corps was allowed to gradually build up its active duty component by June 1950 with the strength of 100 officers, 10 warrant officers, and 1,000 enlisted women. But they couldn't hold the rank above lieutenant colonel, and the number of lieutenant colonels couldn't be more than 10% of women officers. The number of majors was limited to 20%. The act also restricted the jobs women could perform in the military. They couldn't serve an aircraft engaged in combat missions or any naval ship except for transport and hospital ships. Most benefits were the same between men and women, but there were some caveats. Neither their husband nor children could be added as dependents unless the women were the only means of income for the family. This limitation impacted more than pay. Without dependents, women could not live in base housing and their family couldn't shop at the PX or the commissary. On November 4, 1948, Lieutenant Colonel Catherine Tao, Major Julia Hamlet, and Lieutenant Mary Hale were the first women to become active duty Marines. Commandant Clifton Cates administered their oath. Six days later, on the 173rd Marine Corps birthday, the Commandant sworn in the first eight enlisted women. Around this time, the term WM, short for Woman Marine, started to circulate. And despite the Marine Corps being against nicknames for women, this one stuck, and it stuck for a while. I got out of the Corps around 15 years ago, and it was still used then. On November 16, 1948, the Marine Corps issued a memorandum that stated women entering active duty would be referred to as Women Marines. And the short title would be USMC-W. The Director of Marine Corps Women's Reserve, Colonel Catherine Tao, took offense by this label. She was around when the Marine Corps made it clear that women Marines were Marines. So picking her battles, she suggested the W after USMC should be removed and instead be placed in front of their serial numbers. Her recommendation was approved on March 17, 1950. She also argued on the use of the word female. Quote, the use of female instead of women in referring to the distaff side of the Marine Corps, was gone into quite thoroughly when the new Marine Corps manual was written. It was finally agreed upon that woman would be the accepted terminology, even when used as an adjective. For example, women Marines, women officers, etc. The usage follows that established in Public Law 625, Women's Armed Services Integration Act of 1948. From a purist point of view, Female may be correct when used as counterpart of male, but from a woman's point of view, it is very objectionable. I would appreciate, therefore, having reference to female deleted and women substituted. Unquote. 
She ends it with a little joke. Quote, This sounds a little like the battle of the sexes. It won't be unless we are called females. Unquote. On November 29, 1948, Tao started looking at Paris Island, South Carolina, for women's recruit training. She argued that the specialist schools on base would be important for the new recruits and will help speed up the process of creating a qualified unit in case of another war. The commanding general of MCRD Paris Island, Major General Alfred Noble, wholeheartedly agreed with her suggestion and gave his support. Captain Margaret Henderson was selected to lead the recruit training, and she had very little guidance on what to do. She was given a piece of paper with a general training plan and a small staff. They immediately got to work. In January, Henderson and Tao inspected the barracks on Paris Island, and they discussed the training plan her staff created. Henderson also established a woman's uniform shop, and by the end of July, Lieutenants Hale, Fisher, and Sustad reported for duty as staff on the island. By mid-February, the enlisted staff showed up. These few women made up the 3rd Recruit Training Battalion, and they quickly got to work getting the depot ready for new Marines. The barracks were made livable, classrooms were created, lesson plans were written, regulations and battalion orders were drafted, they coordinated with all the depot facilities to prepare for the incoming Marines and practiced close-order drills. The first drill instructors for the incoming recruits were men, and they were selected based on their experience in the drill field. Staff Sergeant Jack Drawhan, Sergeant Peyton Lee, and Corporal Paul Lute were the men who would train the new recruits for six weeks in close-order drill, first aid, chemical warfare, and general knowledge. The first African-American woman would enlist not too long after, and in the summer of 1949, Annie Graham has the honor of holding that title, followed by Anne Estelle Lamb. Some of the African-American women were sent to 3rd Recruit Training Battalion, which was rare at the time. African-American men were still segregated and trained separately from the rest of the Marine Corps. So the 3rd Recruit Training Battalion might also hold the title of the first racially integrated unit in the Marine Corps. When the Korean War came around, the Corps looked towards the women reserves for help, and an additional 13 platoons were authorized. As the number of women in the Corps continued to increase, so did their roles and responsibilities. Captain Mary J. Hale left Paris Island for Dallas, Texas, where she served in a howitzer battalion. Within 15 months of the reserves being created, every one of the 13 platoons were activated to support the Korean conflict. In June 1950, for the first time in U.S. history, the women reserve was called involuntarily to military service with the men. The mobilization of women helped the Marine Corps see their value in a new light and they served in roles outside the traditional administrative tasks. Women were assigned duty in aviation operations, intelligence, photography, motor transport, air control, and multiple other fields. The Korean War also authorized travel again, and women were sent to Hawaii for duty. On July 31, 1951, Colonel Hamlet became the first woman to be assigned to headquarters Fleet Marine Force Pacific. 
The 1950s brought a lot of progress for women in the Corps. The need for more women was realized, and the division of plans and policies suggested that an additional 2,257 women were needed on active duty to support posts throughout the country. The enlistment age for women also lowered from 20 to 18, and the high school diploma was relaxed, and simply passing an equivalency test would be enough. The Plans and Policies Division also studied which MOSs, or jobs, in the Marine Corps women could do. As a result of that study, women were authorized to serve in 27 out of the 43 MOSs. They were also approved to attend specialty schools. I'll list the MOSs on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you want to take a look. Colonel Tao fully supported the study and called it a, quote, thorough, thoughtful, and essentially a realistic presentation of facts pertinent to the utilization of women with the Marine Corps, unquote. The number of women in the Corps wasn't anywhere near the 2% level during the whole time. The Marine Corps set a goal of only 1%, but they never reached that mark. From the Korean War to Vietnam, the number of women serving went from 2,787 to a low of 1,448. And despite the data produced from studies, and about half of the women only served in about six or seven roles in the administrative field. Technical training wasn't really used either, and women were only assigned to one professional development course, the NCO Leadership School. On February 27, 1963, Marine Corps Bulletin 5312 was issued, which asked commands for recommendations on the effective use of women. Colonel Henderson collected the results and organized them into four recommendations. One of the most interesting conclusions that came out of this request was that most commands didn't understand the status of women in the Marine Corps. The problem came from the top. Leadership in the Marine Corps didn't try to understand the value women could bring. Colonel Henderson would be relieved as Director of Women Marines on January 3, 1964. The Marine Corps would also get a new commandant, General Wallace Green, a strong supporter of women in the Marine Corps. Henderson's replacement, Colonel Bishop, said, quote, General Green was light years ahead of his time in support of increased opportunities for women Marines, unquote. One of Green's first move as commandant was to take a look at the low recruiting numbers, training, and utilization of women in the Corps. On August 3, 1964, the commandant ordered Lieutenant General Robert Pepper to chair a Women Marine Program study group. This group would be known as the Pepper Board, and their mission was, quote, to propose a program to render the peacetime service of women Marines of optimum benefit to the Marine Corps. Unquote. Needless to say, the final report had very mixed reactions. The Assistant Chief of Staff, Major General Weed, agreed with all but one of the 83 recommendations provided by the board. On the other hand, the head of the Personnel Department, Major General Fields, had issues with the recommendations and felt that it would, quote, attract more young ladies into the Marine Corps and induce them to stay longer and be more productive during their stay, 
We should tailor our whole women's program to attract not young, untrained small-town high school graduates, but young women of professional skills and training who truly want to make their mark in a man's world, unquote. He suggested that the program teach women about the Marine Corps and not how to be a male Marine in a skirt. Between the Vietnam War and the early 1970s, the Pepper Board's recommendations were slowly put into practice and the Marine Corps saw a significant increase in their recruitment numbers. They went from 60% of their quota in 1963 to 106% three years later. Training also opened for women, and many started to attend officer specialist training, professional training, and amphibious warfare school. New opportunities were available overseas, and women were sent to Okinawa and even Vietnam. The first woman Marine to report to Vietnam was Master Sergeant Barbara Dubinsky. She arrived on March 18, 1967, and landed 30 miles north of Saigon. And although women wouldn't fight in Vietnam, they had a big impact on many Vietnamese. Staff Sergeant Ermelinda Salazar voluntarily took over a civic action project involving the St. Vincent de Paul Orphanage. After her 11-hour workday, Salazar would head to the orphanage and help the nuns take care of the children. She cared for the kids, organized events, and recruited volunteers to help. She was nominated for the 1970 Unsung Heroine Award from the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Her recommendation stated, quote, Her unusual and untiring efforts to as these otherwise forgotten children reflect great credit upon herself, the United States Marine Corps, this command, and the United States, unquote. She earned the Joint Service Commendation Medal for her services. By the 1970s, the women's movement started to gain more ground. The concept of equal opportunity made its way through the United States, including the military, and just like previous times in U.S. history, the Marine Corps was slow to adopt compared to other military branches. On September 1, 1972, the Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Elmo Zumwalt Jr., suggested a plan that would allow, quote, women an equal opportunity to contribute their talents and achieve full professional status in the Navy, unquote. The Marine Corps didn't have anything similar in the works, and like before, the Corps would have to be forced to make the change. The Secretary of Defense, Melvin Laird, ordered that every branch create an Equal Opportunity Affirmative Action Plan by the end of November. A committee was established, and they created five objectives. One, to identify and eliminate all discrimination based solely on sex. Two, to ensure women Marines equal opportunity for assignment to and within non-combat occupational fields. Three, to provide the opportunity for women Marines to obtain technical and professional schooling at all levels. Four, to provide equal opportunities to women Marines for progression and advancement through duty assignments. And five, to ensure equal economic opportunity for women Marines. The Marine Corps set a goal to have a strength of 3,100 women by the end of June 1977, an increase of 30%. But in March 1977, 
General Wilson made an unexpected announcement, and the goal would change. The Marine Corps' target would nearly triple, and he wanted 10,000 women recruited by 1985. The progress from the Pepper Board and the recent Snell Committee saw retention rates skyrocket for women. And in 1975, the rate was 10.4% compared to the male Marines 7.9%. New occupational fields opened for women, including judge advocates, musicians, tank mechanics, and a lot more. Another big change happened in 1973. Up until then, the Marine Corps manual only allowed women to command units that were mostly made up of female. There were a few exceptions, but for the most part, the Marine Corps followed this manual. In December 1973, General Cushman announced a new policy stating that women would be allowed to command units other than female Marine companies. When Colonel Tao drafted the policies for women decades prior, she made it clear that a woman would never serve alone, and women officers were always with the enlisted. This policy had its challenges, mostly for the command that had trouble housing only a few women, but overall, it was insightful and drastically helped women Marines from feeling isolated in units that were comprised only of men. In 1974, the Marine Corps began its Total Marine Corps Initiative, which questioned the concept of segregation. The Marine Corps didn't always practice what they preached. As we discussed earlier, their public declarations of a unified corps didn't align with their policies. But in 1974, a significant effort was made to help bring equality to every Marine. New opportunities were available for women and the Corps revisited policies that segregated them from men. Women were able to work in specialties originally designated for only men, and the need for all women marine companies became a thing of the past. Commands in the fleet started to suggest dissolving all female units and to include women with the rest of the marines. The Commandant addressed this topic in his white letter, number 5-76. Quote, with the achievement of more complete integration of women, the requirement for separate women's units should be reviewed. Positive benefits can be derived from assigning women Marines administratively to their duty units. During transition periods, you may find it desirable to establish additional duty billets for a woman officer or staff non-commissioned officer to work as special assistants and providing guidance relative to women Marine matters." Unquote. By June 1977, only three women companies were left. Regulations also applied to every Marine, and women now face punishments for disobeying any regulations. However, the punishment between men and women were still disproportionate. Women didn't have a military obligation, so the Marine Corps thought the best punishment was to simply kick them out of the Corps. This punishment wasn't limited to crimes or disobedience. Women who couldn't adjust to the military, caused more work than they produced, and who had a negative effect on command morale and discipline were administratively discharged. As you can imagine, the interpretation for these qualifications varied. But despite the unequal punishment, the number of women who received disciplinary actions compared to the men was less than 1%. 
In the 1970s, women also started to push back on the regulations that didn't recognize dependents. Colonel Sustad took the lead on changing this view, and with the help of her legal advisor, Colonel John Otsby, came up with a solid argument on why the Marine Corps should get rid of that stipulation. She was successful, and in 1971, the Corps created a policy for natural mothers. There were women discharged from the Marine Corps for being pregnant, but with the new waiver, those women were now looking to come back. Women were allowed 10 weeks of maternity leave, four weeks before delivery and six weeks after. The biggest complaint to this policy was that the extra time off would cause women to be away from their duties more than men. However, in a 1977 study, time off, which included maternity leave and other, quote, strictly female matters, unquote, I have no idea what that is, showed that women lost less time than men. Men were more likely to be out for desertion and drug and alcohol problems. On May 14, 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in the Frontero v. Richardson case and concluded that service women were eligible for all benefits granted to every other service member, which included dependents. On May 20, 1985, Commandant Paul Keeley issued Marine Corps Order 1500.24 Delta, which updated the training policy for women. In short, it stated that female Marines were to receive the same training as men in boot camp, except for offensive combat training. Female recruits learned day and night tactics, repelling, confidence course, and defensive field training. On July 29, 1985, recruits were tested on close-order drill with rifles for the first time, and female drill instructors were allowed to carry swords. Now, there's a story about this which I think speaks to the camaraderie of Marines. The recruit depot was aware of the order coming down to allow women to train with swords, but command leadership strictly prohibited any woman from training before the order was officially released. It wasn't realistic to think anyone could pick up sword and rifle manual skills on the same day they had to train new recruits. Captain Denise Van Persum didn't agree with this and she discussed it with her senior enlisted advisor, the sergeant major of her command. He agreed that his fellow Marines needed to learn how to drill before they could teach others, and he, along with other male drill instructors, secretly trained the female drill instructors behind literal closed doors inside the gym. And by the time the order came around, they had the skills and confidence to lead recruits. The Marine Corps extended boot camp to 11 weeks, and women started training with grenades, learning land navigation, and had to suffer through the gas chamber. Marksmanship training was also authorized, and within four months, recruits achieved a rifle qualification rate of 97.8%. A quarter of the women would qualify as expert, the highest marksmanship rating in the Corps. Captain Van Persum stated, quote, Everyone expected a qualification rate of about 40% when women started firing, and here we are at 98%. Male recruits firing in the same period qualified from 96.6 to 99.5%. Recruit Anita Lobo was one of the first female recruits to go through this training, 
and she set a new Paris Island record and scored 246 out of a possible 250 points. When the 1980s came to an end, boot camp for women extended to 12 weeks, and most training aligned with the men's. By 1994, the training plan for male and female Marines had the same requirements, but they still weren't integrated. Again, the Marine Corps would be the last service to head in that direction. In Desert Shield, Desert Storm, women made up 12% of U.S. ground forces in the initial buildup, and the Marine Corps gave a lot of consideration to enhancing female recruit Marine combat training. Brigadier General Klimp gave a pretty convincing argument, quote, Our current approach is unfair to both our female Marines and to our fleet commanders. It is unfair to our female Marines because they are being shortchanged. It is unfair to our commanders in the fleet because it creates a false sense of security. Every commander should reasonably assume that Marines possessing the same MOS, male or female, have the same battlefield skills. Today, that is not the case. Unquote. In October 1996, General Krulak added the Crucible in boot camp, a 54-hour training exercise meant to test Marines' mental and physical limits. Women would be required to complete this milestone, and they participated in hand-to-hand -hand combat training, bayonet training, and other obstacle courses. The aviation ban was lifted as well, and on July 23, 1993, 2nd Lieutenant Sarah Deal of Pemberville, Ohio, became the first woman to be accepted to flight school. This milestone opened the door to many women, including Major Katie Higgins Cook, the first female Blue Angels pilot, who I had the honor of interviewing. Check out that episode if you're interested. In August 2017, females achieved another milestone, but this time the achievement wouldn't be from a human. Ofa May became the first female bulldog to serve as a mascot in the Marine Corps at MCRD Paris Island. Named in honor of the first female Marine, she successfully completed recruit training and assumed her official duties as the depot's mascot on November 17, 2017. In January 2020, she was promoted to the rank of Lance Corporal. The challenges faced by women in the Corps are often lost in political arguments and traditionalism. Despite the hurdles, discrimination from the top down, and reluctance to deploy women to any other specialties, women kept coming back to the Corps when they had every reason not to. Call it whatever you want. Patriotism, determination, stubbornness. The women Marines of the past deserve respect for their unwillingness to give up. The decision to allow women in the Corps isn't due to political correctness. It's not because the Marine Corps or the United States is getting soft. If you're someone who thinks that, you're in for an uphill battle trying to win that argument. For over 100 years, we've been testing the value women bring to the Corps. This has been done through multiple research methodologies and real-world scenarios. There have been academic studies, Marine Corps studies, individual command studies, board reviews, debates between senior leaderships, a hell of a lot of suggestions by notable Marine commanders, and let's not forget the contributions during actual wars. Major wars, by the way. From freeing a man to fight, 
as the old recruiting posters used to say, to deciphering coded messages during World War II, it has been proven repeatedly. The value of an integrated core is undeniable. In 2019, Congress ordered the Marine Corps to begin integrating women at the platoon level in boot camp by 2025, making it par for the course for the Marine Corps not only being forced, but being the last military branch to incorporate women. On February 9th, 2021, female recruits stood on the yellow footprints at MCRD San Diego for the first time. Once again, this decision was criticized and comments flooded social media pages with the same arguments used in 1918. We're seeing history repeat itself, not only in the echoes of excuses, but in the undeniable value a unified Corps will bring to the United States. And just like every time in Marine Corps history, the efficiency of the Corps will increase, and the critics will end up looking like fools. So Semper Fi, sisters, and keep rocking those sock buns. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll head back to the Banana Wars and continue the conversation on Nicaragua and cover the Stimson mission. Welcome to this week's book recommendation. This week's audiobook is Ghost Wars, The Secret History of the CIA, Afghanistan, and Bin Laden. From the Soviet Invasion to September 10th, 2001, by Stephen Cole. That lengthy title pretty much sums up the book. This is a long audiobook, almost 27 hours, but man is it an eye-opener. The book goes into detail on the United States foreign policy in Afghanistan and the rise of bin Laden. It also talks about the rise of the Taliban, a fitting topic for current affairs. Visit audibletrial.com slash marinehistory for a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. But don't feel obligated to select my recommendation. This free audiobook applies to any of the thousands of Audible choices. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let me know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.